0: Welcome to Our Tribe, the podcast that sits down with Jewish professionals and entrepreneurs to hear their stories, share their advice, and bear their Jewish souls. Now here's your host, Rabbi Tuvia Kopstein. Welcome back to Our Tribe, the podcast. My name is Tuvia Kopstein and I will be your host. In this episode, we meet Yoni Mazor. Yoni is a founding partner of Getida, which is an Amazon auditing firm which helps amazon third-party sellers figure out all of their finances and all their inventory and all the discrepancies and everything that's going on in their multi-million dollars of businesses when you're missing a thousand dollars here ten thousand dollars there thirty thousand dollars there they get you their refunds but the only story about how he started as an israeli and went through the army and then accident and then backpacked and accidentally got involved in the world of Sales and retail sales, and that led to e-commerce. Very interesting story, and what they're doing now, and how being a Jew plays a role in the whole thing. You'll hear it all on Our Tribe with Yoni Mazor. But first, station identification, it's Podcast Fellowship, podcastfellowship.org, that powers Our Tribe, the podcast. Podcast Fellowship is an international Jewish outreach nonprofit, which is helping Jewish young adults around the world... Connect with their Judaism by understanding the sources, podcasts based on great topics of Jewish wisdom and Torah wisdom, discussing them one on one with mentors, and earning a generous fellowship each week that they do so. Podcastfellowship.org. Without further ado, enjoy this conversation on Archer of the Podcast with Yoni Mazor. Okay, we are thrilled to be here with Yoni Mazor. How are you, Yoni?
1: Thank God. Thank God. Doing well. Thank you for having me, Tuvia.
0: Okay. A pleasure. Okay, Yoni, so before we get started with your story and how you got to where you are, can you please tell us what do you do? Got it. So
1: today, I'm uh, the chief growth officer. Uh, I'm actually one of the co-founders as well of a company called Getira G-E-T-I-D-A. It's right in the background uh, there. Yeah, it's right in my background. I'm in my <laughs> studio. Um, if you're just listening to this episode, just okay. visit gtidea.com. You can learn more or we might discuss a bit more in uh, the the episode, but high level. Uh it's a technology company. Um our focus is on conducting um financial and logistics auditing for e-commerce businesses, particularly Amazon businesses or Amazon sellers, third party sellers. Um yeah, that's in a nutshell uh, you know, uh my uh my position.
0: Okay, great. So we're gonna get back to that and ask a lot of good questions, hopefully. So so, tell us, but let, let's take us, us from the beginning to to where you are now, like where, what kind of community did you grow up in, schooling, how did you get to end up doing this? You got it. So uh, I was born and raised in Israel, in a small
1: town north of Tel Aviv, uh, called Ranana, mm-hmm. uh, which I think uh, the translation from Hebrew means fresh, fresh, right? Yeah, we say in Hebrew, Anan is like fresh, Anana is a fresh on uh, a female version, and a uh, small anecdote there, the town was actually uh, established over 100 years ago by American Jews. Even before the state of, uh, you know, modern state of Israel was created, uh, they, they went up to, uh, over to that area and started uh, orchards, I believe, um, American Jews. And then even today I it's very Anglo-Saxon. There's a lot of Americans still there because uh, the reason uh, I guess I grew up there or ended up there was uh, because my mother, she's originally from Detroit, Michigan. Uh-huh. And when she finished high school, she uh, went for one year for kibbutz uh kibbutz is those um those villages in Israel back in the day they still have them around that uh it 's like a little mini communist communist kind of uh structure where everybody kind of does different jobs, but they all kind of pay the same. She volunteered there uh she didn't so she didn't even get paid <clears throat> so she volunteered for one year in the kibbutz she fell in love with israel decided she wants to go to university in in israel so she went to Ilan University and she met my father, fell in love, got married, and she moved um to Ranana because her uncle, which was also originally from Detroit, Michigan, was there, American. I uh-huh. guess he came there because there was other Americans there. All the way back to the, I guess the first American Jews that mm-hmm. came there over a hundred years ago. So even today, it's, it's pretty, um, pretty Anglo-Saxon. The city, a lot of Americans, South Africans, uh, Australian Jews, a lot of French in the past, uh, 10 or 20 years. They, they also migrated from, from France. So that's kind of the, the, the town itself, Ranana, which means, okay. like I said, fresh, even though it's over a hundred years old. <laughs> but the um, orchards are
0: fresh. That's why they call it ranana, right? Yeah. Yeah. Still Probably. orchards
1: around it. So it's beautiful. Uh, actually, um, the first time my wife came to visit, uh, the town, um, and we drove around, she, she saw the orchards and, and the, the fruits and the oranges. And this was in January. She's originally from Moscow, which was like, you know, like three feet of snow, you know, seven January, months a year. Yeah. <laughs> during January, she showed, so she, she was so shocked. She stopped, she said, stop the car. I got to go, you know, touch this, look at this. And she also fell in love with digital from, I guess, first sight. Um, Yeah. So that's kind of the town, the environment today. It's, it's pretty modern. It's all built up. Still orchards all around, nice scenery. Um, Yeah. So when I was growing up, actually, when I was born, I was born in 84, uh there's only like one stoplight. Today there's many others and it's really urbanized. But um it used to be like also a horse and carriages. Really? In the 80s, yeah, mid eighties. Wow. And then uh really kind of uh ballooned. Any, any, as, don- uh,
0: any donkeys?
1: Yeah, donkeys, horses. I have donkeys, yeah. Okay. Yeah, we had them all around. And uh so yeah, I grew up in uh what they call today, I guess, a modern orthodox uh family. Mm-hmm. We're orthodox but very modern. We had TV in the house and uh we watched movies and followed sports and stuff like that. Um so yeah i i went to school at the religious uh but the the, the government owned religious uh school for about the first six years mm-hmm. and then i went to a school um it's a it's a private school it's not government it was from an ampio called amit i think amit is from the um ladies from uh the united states that created it uh they donated uh you know jewish ladies from all over i guess uh the united states or maybe even the world and they created this uh, network of schools in israel it's a religious schools but it's still private uh-huh uh, very affordable for the students. I believe that my aunt was located in Queens today, New York. She actually is a member. She's a lady. And I mean, uh, Amit, I mean, yeah. Hey, you know, she was, I guess, contributing. And uh, we didn't really know. But uh, when I actually started going to that school and realized behind the, the people behind it is ladies, uh, Jewish ladies in the United States, and then discovered that my aunt was also involved, I was just pretty uh, proud moment uh, back in the day. <laughs> so I did my six years there. It's actually, it was a brand new school. I was the first class in so, you know in Ran- uh, yeah this is the, really in the outskirts of Ranana it's, it's a small uh, educational village called Kvalbatia Kvalbatia, Kvalbatia? yeah right. the village of Batia but it's really yeah. you know, it's it's a village within the town it's okay. a, it's a strange thing but they have it there uh yeah so uh, I was first grade there I mean the first class so when I was in 7th grade there's never anybody above me so when I went to 8th grade there was seventh grade underneath me. And when I went to ninth grade, there's eighth grade and seventh grade. So we were the first class first. uh, So they were kind of the pioneers of the school. It was, uh, we had a, we had only one class, 24 students. We had a really uh, influential rabbi that kind of created and established the school with the vision to, to have, you know, a modern Orthodox, school uh which focuses uh puts an emphasis and focus on science and mathematics and stuff like that Mm -hmm. so uh, the the students there are well diverse in you know judaica studies but also regular world stuff you know secular world stuff Mm -hmm. and uh it turned out to be a great great success you know i was a first class uh actually i wanted to go to the big yeshiva yeshivas are the big you know uh uh uh
0: schools uh, sort of university of the religious study
1: Yeah, yeshivas are the structure for the, I guess, uh, uh, call it ultra orthodox or regular orthodox where they're, they're typically very big and, uh, well established. Um, but they focus hard on just the Judaicas and less on the secular side. I wanted to kind of go there because that was the main trend. Everybody was going there. My parents kind of, they made a decision for me in a way. Uh, Actually, actually, I'll be honest. I don't think I got accepted to the yeshiva. Okay. But they kind of spared me for that. You know, after I grew up a little bit, they kind of told me, but, um, <laughs> I didn't get accepted. There was a lot of demand to go there. And then yeah. this opportunity for a new school popped up. So they kind of took the chance. They, they saw the vision and everything. And I think they connected to it. So I went to that school and it turned out to be This a was very... after, after 12th grade? No, no. This isn't when I was in sixth oh, grade. Oh, when okay. Seventh grade. I was Got in it. first class. Got it. And I was uh, debating between, you know, uh, going into seventh cl- uh, grade uh, between the Yeshiva. Mm-hmm. Or other schools, including this one. So my parents went uh decided that I should go to that school. And in retrospect, it was an amazing decision. I had an amazing experience. It was but divine really divine intervention. And we had really good influential rabbi that, you know, kind of um gave us a lot of attention. We we're the only class. It wasn't like five, six, seven, eight classes like the big yeshivas or big schools had. Remember, this is Israel, you know. The schools are big. We have, you know, big population there on the religious side as well. So uh yeah, and you know, I uh uh I, 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 I learned a lot of Judaica studies. You know, we did the Talmud, uh, what they also call the Gemara Bible studies, but also we learned, you know, science and, and we had laboratories and computers and learned Excel, PowerPoint in a very young age, eighth grade, ninth grade it was pretty good. Okay. Back in the day, we served the internet. I remember I, I, I discovered Google back in 98 or 99 through school, through a class. So, so check. There's a search engine called Google. So the school is really really good, really good quality, and over the years it became a really elite school. Um a lot of uh, the graduates became really, really prominent in the business world, but also the army, you know, they became pilots and 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 leading, uh, you know, commanders and generals uh in in the Israeli army and the Israeli society, so that uh, that was pretty cool to see afterwards. Did you
0: go yeah. to the
1: army after 12th grade? Yeah, yeah. So after uh, 12th grade what I did actually I took one year off to go to a special Shiva uh that uh, is a preparation for the army. Okay. So I mixed Jude- uh, Jewish studies and Arabic. Oh. I was learning okay. half of the day Jewish studies and the other half Arabic and a lot of it. And I took a whole year off so I can really uh, penetrate and, and, and have a track, uh, within my military service within the intelligence, uh, uh-huh. community. I knew that I wanted to do intelligence. I connect to languages, you know, pretty well. Obviously I know Hebrew from birth, but English, I connected with that, uh, pretty well. Also my mother was speaking to us in English and it was very easy for me to learn that in school and excel in that. Same thing with, uh, Arabic. Once I learned it, I picked mm-hmm. it up pretty quickly, uh, within the school. I had the confidence that well, I'm going to pick up a language and the fundamentals, uh, pretty quickly. And uh, I was very interested in, in the intelligence, uh, opportunity within the Israeli army. It's pretty prestige, I would say, or, yeah. uh, sophisticated or, or robust, uh, all these fancy <laughs> words. But, uh, I guess all the, all the words I was trying to say that it's high quality. It was a really high quality service and high mm-hmm. quality engagement. So. Um, I don't know, that kind of drew me in. Instead of just doing the regular stuff, uh I done logistics or infantry, which is good. A lot of my friends did that. It's very noble. But for myself, I don't know, for some strange reason, I felt like I want to use my head uh, instead mm-hmm. of just my muscle. Um, yeah, so I took a year off uh, and, and it was successful. I was able to really um, enter uh, the, the intelligence community in the Army. So, I served in a very special, small unit. Uh, it's called SNI, Special Navy Intelligence. Navy. So, yeah, Special Navy mm-hmm. Intelligence. We used to um serve on on the missile cruisers and submarines and things of that nature. And that was mm-hmm. a very meaningful three years, uh three years of service that I did uh with the IDF, the Israeli D- Defense Force. I uh, also we had a war. Well, as as I was about to finish the service, we had uh two thousand six in uh July mm-hmm. I believe, uh we had a war with Lebanon right mm-hmm. on, you know, on my last few weeks in the army, which was pretty uh intensive. But thank God I finished it. I uh you know I uh, one piece. It's all good. It was really meaningful. I made a lot of amazing, uh, life friends, which, uh, we still are very friendly today. I just came back from Israel a few weeks ago. I was there for January, 2023 mm-hmm. and we did a kind of a reunion with my uh, military unit friends, wow. which is really nice. Some of them I haven't seen for over a decade. It was really nice to catch up, see how people get married. They, you know, they build up families and, and careers. Uh, so it's really nice to see. So I'm very grateful for the service that, that, you know, I did uh, in the army uh so i got great friends really good experience i used my head a lot i picked up a new skill which is a language so uh looking back that year that i invested out of my own parents dime it wasn't my dime my parents dime uh turned out to be a really good investment um for for myself and hopefully for the country for the service
0: very good so now tell us how what happens after the army three years in the army you're probably 22 years old 21 years old
1: yeah i drafted in 19 i got released in 22 uh, because that year that I did, uh, up north in the Yeshiva, actually, the, uh, just, uh, for the anecdote, it was in Roshpina, very close mm-hmm. to Tzfat. Tzfat is a major holy, uh, one of the four holy cities of Israel. Uh, that's where my father grew up. So it was really nice mm-hmm. for me to be in that area for a whole year and also kind of engage a little bit with my family that was up there and my grandmother. Uh, so that's a little bit on the anecdote there. <clears throat> that was the Kabonis. So after the army, what I did, I, uh, I think almost, uh, it took almost a year to, to kind of just, uh, work, uh, and save money so i can go to a trip i can travel the world so there's a big big trend for uh, israeli soldiers after they get released uh to travel the world you know you go to a to a structure where it's three years and it's pretty intense and you're you're an instrument to a big machinery right, uh, right. even just um it's a little funny but it's true in the army if you hurt yourself as a soldier you get punished you can go to jail because you're hurting military property huh Right, so you consider the, if you're you know, you really you're not a become. citizen, you're a soldier. A soldier is not a citizen. It's a transition you make when you get drafted and you go to you do the boot camp. You make the transition between a civilian, which has its almost certain rights, and then a soldier, which is serving for uh, the army, it has its different rights. You have different rights. You have different, you have different uh, law, right? So if you do something wrong, you get court martial. You don't get you don't go to a really a uh, regular court, and they have their own prisons. Um so, uh, it's, it's, you know, obviously, and needless to say, it's a very structured, uh, 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 or, you know, position to be in for three years. And I guess when you want, when you get released, you want to, you know, take some time to, to recharge, yeah, unplug <laughs> and, and, you know, grow your hair and you don't have to shave every day. And, <laughs> you know, you don't have to wear the same thing in uniforms. So you want to kind of get out and express yourself. So there's a big trend and it's very popular for soldiers or released soldiers in Israel to go travel the world. You know, it would be very nice to travel around our neighborhood. But the middle, you know, the Middle East, but you know, it's a little, a little hard to go up north to Lebanon or Syria, not so uh, friendly. So typically, what you know, the soldiers do or the relief soldiers do, they, they'll they go to other Asia, India, or Nepal, or Cambodia, or Central or South America, Hong so, Kong. Uh, uh, Hong Kong, no, because the thing is, you got to remember that we, we travel on a budget on a dime. Okay, Hong Kong yeah. is not cheap. Makes so sense. typically, yeah. you want to go to places where it's cheap. Mm-hmm. I assume Syria can be cheap, or Jordan, or Egypt, mm-hmm. but it's not so friendly for, um, for, uh, right now, uh, right. To, 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 I guess Israeli tourists. Uh, and I guess it's not far enough. You want to really kind of spread out. It's, it's very similar in a way to how, uh, I guess American <laughs> af- students after, co- after high school, they want to go to college, I guess, outside of state, right? They want to kind yeah. of go outside a little bit, a little bit of notion of that. You want to go somewhere, and get more, more remote and you don't want to stick around. Europe is too expensive. North America is too expensive. So you go to Central South america or to uh the the far east okay. uh yeah. yeah uh it's particularly like um where did you go Yeah, yeah. so i chose uh, south america okay i uh i felt like i wanted to also pick up spanish <laughs> pick up on the spanish language hmm. i uh, i used to kind of watch uh, some shows when i was growing up in spanish and i picked up uh, on a, f- a few you know elementary words back in the end of the day so i had a bit more inclination to go there and a lot of my friends also felt like they want to go there. So uh yeah. So I I worked for almost a year. I saved up money. I worked as a barista and uh and at coffee bean and tea leaf. I don't know if uh, you, you know that chain store. It's like uh you know, there's the Starbucks basically. Okay. But it's actually from California, it's originally a thing from California. They oh, have it coffee all. Coffee bean and tea leaf? Yeah, coffee bean. Yeah. It's in Israel. Oh, you came to it's in Israel, but no no, it's no. So the, the chain store is originally from from America, from California, the coffee bean okay. and tea leaf. But they had I think they still have an Israel. Uh they're still yeah. active in Israel. So I worked there in, in the branch in Ranana as a barista. I saved up, uh, I saved up uh, the money, and then uh, yeah, I went to travel South America for about six months. I started. All your, friends,
0: all your friends were also saving up money and working that year.
1: Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, unless the uh, the ones already had some money from other uh, other uh, I don't know things, other okay. places. But most <laughs> of them, for the most part, they worked. I remember I saved up about ten thousand dollars. That was kind of the budget. Okay. Uh, I put aside for that and the whole thing back to back cost me, you know, looking back, it, it cost about $9,000 okay. for everything. Six months in South America. Mm-hmm. So I started in Colombia, right? And then I kind of uh, transitioned into, I'm going to spit it out pretty quickly from Colombia to Peru, Bolivia, Argentina, Chile, Uruguay, Brazil.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: That's kind of an, uh, so it took about six months. It's called the Southern Wave. You start from north, uh, from north, you go south and okay. you have the opposite wave. They start from the south. And they go up north, uh, and we meet along the track with all the with all these um backpackers. We call ourselves backpackers. Once you uh-huh. so admit a switch between being a high school student, uh into a soldier, into a backpacker. It's like a mindset. It's really it's pretty funny because okay. you gotta keep in mind every day that we wake up, you look around, like, what's my pleasure today? What would it like to go? Climb a mountain, a lagoon, skydiving, water rafting, bungee jumping, uh you know historical sites. I kind of did it all. It was an amazing experience. Mm-hmm. Um, also, a huge bonus. I picked up on Spanish. That was really great. You know, when I started uh, the first day, and after six months, I, uh, I was pretty well diverse. Um, so that was great. And then I uh, moved to uh, afterwards. I was uh, we're heading into 2007. I moved to uh, Detroit, Michigan, Oak Park. Uh, I guess that's where you live right now. That's where I am. There you go. My divine intervention. Um, so yeah, I went there and I stayed there for almost a year, I think. Um, there's, uh, as I mentioned earlier, my mother was originally from, you know, Oak Park. Uh, so I uh, stayed by my uncle and aunt. And my grandmother was there. And the reason I went there is because we have a family business downtown, uh, still active. Actually, it's third generation. It started by my grandfather in 1950. And then my uncle, uh, got involved and my, now my older brother is involved. That's the leather working, um, right? Yeah. It's called, uh, Reed Sportswear. It's, uh, leather uh, jacket manufacturer or manufacturing um, is still active. We still have domestic production here in the United States yeah. in Detroit, downtown Detroit, Michigan, but also of course, overseas, they import from China. Um, and also there's a, an outlet store. So I kind of, so towards Christmas, my father, my, my brother told me, you know, if you can come help us in the stores, it gets busy. Uh, it'll be really helpful. So I did. So I said, you know, before I went to South America, I said, if you ever need me, let me know. I'll come back. So that's what I kind of did. Uh, and it was great. I went to downtown Detroit every single day. Uh, uh, you know, that was kind of my transition into living in the United States. Okay. I always visited, you know, as I uh, was growing up every year for the most part, you know, I went to Detroit, I went to New York, my, 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 my grandparents, my aunts, uncles. Um, but this is when I kind of started kind of settling in the United States. Uh, I worked at the store, also a little bit helped in the factory and it was great. Downtown Detroit with all its past glory and I guess, uh, destruction yeah no also kind of destruction it was uh you know because the, yeah. the, the city was an amazing one of the most important cities in the world i think it was like the third most important city in the world in the 50s 60s maybe 70s and then it went to a steady decline because right. uh, it did what it failed seconds, to kind of right. yeah and it reinvent itself with other industries it was so highly uh reliant on the auto industry uh and really didn't diverse to any others uh so it went to really steep decline once foreign cars came in and uh the 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 American consumer started, you know, uh, choosing the imports, uh, or competing, uh, non-American uh, brands. Um, and the city kind of went into this, uh, urban decay and also the downtown itself, you know, the, the suburbs grew up and, and people live from the downtown to the suburbs. Small history about that. I think in its peak it had over 2 million residents downtown Detroit, mm-hmm. but now has less than 700,000. Mm-hmm. If you look at any major American city, all of them grew since the 50s, 60s, 70s, mm-hmm. but this particular city, you know, got a slash. Uh, you know, with, uh, with more than half of, of, the, of the population migrating out, so that's a unique uh city and town in the United States. Nevertheless, I, I yeah, it was it was, it was amazing to, to just be there, work there. Uh, it was funny. We did some TV ads. I appeared in some of them to bring the traffic into the the store. You we know, were posing with jackets and stuff like that okay. uh, in downtown Detroit skyline. <laughs> that was the beginning was of your great. acting career. Uh, yeah, beginning <laughs> the end, beginning and okay. the end, yeah. <laughs> Just okay. helping out a little bit there. Uh, it's funny because when people were going to the store, the customers and look at me funny because they, they they don't know why they re- they don't realize why they know me. You know, I know why because of the commercial. Okay, so that was pretty funny. <clears throat> uh, and we kind of used the, the 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 people working with us to to appear in the the commercials to make it authentic. So that was pretty cool. Uh, yeah. So I did my almost year almost a year over there. Then I signed up for law school in Israel. Right, and my father's lawyer has his own office. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I had a few months to kill, to burn, uh, before I started law school. Uh, so my friend who was actually, uh, located in North Carolina, I grew up with him in Ranana in Israel. Mm-hmm. He was originally from Staten Island. Okay. Imidalia. And then for a few years, he was, uh, in North Carolina working over there and doing really well in business. So he said, you know what, come, you know, work with me, uh, for a few months before you start the university in Israel and, um, you'll be able to save some money.
0: mm mm-hmm.
1: And then we have some money for for school for university. Uh, so I said, okay, I'll, I'll try it out. I went there, and then very very quickly I got the hang of it. Uh, and, and the money was really really good. Uh, what so kind of, what kind of business was that? So it as you know, it's those mall kiosks when you have all these Israelis coming around. Oh, yeah, yeah. So we sold uh, beauty products, variety of stuff, yeah, beauty products, toys, stuff like that. So it's pretty much retail. I came from the angle of uh, you know, in inner city retail with you know, in downtown Detroit. And this transitioned me into, I guess, the malls, the American mall scene. Um, so we worked in various, uh, amount of, malls over there in North Carolina. Um, uh, so it was a really unique experience to me to, to feel the, the mall environment, uh, with all these different retail products. I, 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 caught it pretty quickly needless to say, my language was fine. Um, and I already had some sales skills from, from the store itself. Uh, I picked up on it pretty quickly. I was also really good at instructing uh, you know, teaching and instructing others how to sell. And that gave me, uh, so, and, I, in sure, what happened was I became a partner. So I had a position there for, for a while. And then after a few years, I just sold my position and then moved to New Jersey. Wait, so you uh, did, you deferred law school? You didn't go yeah, to law school? Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Oh. And, uh, just quick, quick, uh, ending. I never went to law school. <laughs> okay. i stayed in America since then. Yes. Just, just, uh, so you never, like, okay. you like the being in the malls and the and the sales in the malls. It's yeah so what much that was, you
1: stayed in that business yeah yeah for for uh, i think it was two or three years um I picked up on it so quickly and and it was a uh, i guess a business opportunity and uh I was making a, a a good living uh and I was also in communication with my parents and uh, they said you know what in israel if you if you throw a penny in the air you're gonna hit a lawyer you know no rush it's saturated with lawyers you know if you find something that you do in business and it's making uh, you know you're getting a good experience and you're making you know a good amount of money uh, that's okay that can wait uh and i was i felt like i'm growing i was growing my ability to obviously first of all is you know make sales myself then training others how to sell then you know opening up more locations and then uh-huh. handling inventory and logistics all these layers of experience uh and also making money uh, and growing with income i felt good to me felt like it's a good track for me to to pick up on so i continued with it i pulled on that thread and kept pulling and
0: it felt okay yeah but <laughs> well, can i can i stop it right yeah. there sure. i just want to ask what was the you're selling toys in a mall. Like, what? What makes a person a good salesman? Is it educating the the potential? But someone passes by and they say, "Hey, that looks like a nice toy." And you, you tell them, "You know what this toy does?" You know, look at the, listen, listen. So to this world whatever is- you're selling, it could be cosmetics, toys,
1: um, uh, gadgets, whatever it is. So on a quick note, on a quick note, it's a whole. For me, it's a whole. I can I can spend days and weeks just you know, hammering out all the all the elements behind it. Uh-huh. But you have to have a, a really uh, strong belief in yourself and you're, in the conviction that um, um, that you can communicate well. What is the opportunity for the consumer to uh-huh. buy? Uh-huh. What are the benefits? Be very clear about that, and, and it's going to sell itself. Uh, and of course, be very friendly and be able to connect very quickly to the individual that you're, uh, you know, in front of. And the amazing learning experience for me was that the variety of humans and, and types of people and personalities that America has uh-huh. every part of the spectrum. It was amazing. I, some people, you know, get shocked. They get uh culture shock or shell shock for me. I was just embracing it. Wow. So many, like from almost any of nationality in the world, right. Any shapes and colors. Any... And they were there
0: in North Carolina. They were there
1: was no North Carolina. Yeah. <laughs> Wherever it wasn't, you go. Yeah. But actually I, I did uh we did a few locations. We had a location in Fayetteville, a location in Asheville in the mountains. We had uh-huh. in uh, Greensboro, we had in uh, Raleigh, the capital city. So, so we got all these uh, different types of cities, but, as far as I, I quickly came to learn and understand that America is the world. Hmm. It's really a, the world placed together in one one cohesive environment called the United States of America, you know, you know layered within 15 states. And each state has its capital city. It's amazing structure. Uh, I guess looking back, I kind of fell in love with it in a way, even though I was born as an American outside abroad because uh, my mother's American. Mm-hmm. That gave me, you know, from the inner city, Detroit, the decay into <laughs> North Carolina it was a good yeah. balancing act to see. You know, North Carolina was on the rise. It's booming. It's growing. It's doing pretty well, especially ah, the Raleigh. That. Yeah, the Raleigh-Durham uh, region is, is growing very, very uh, uh, rapidly in the past decade or so. Uh, I was always kind of competing with Austin, Texas, and the oh. South. And a lot of people from, you know, the, the the coastal cities were just coming in. People from New York, from California, uh, I guess high taxes there or something like that. They were all kind of migrating to the South because technology was coming and settling in manufacturing and services. Uh, you know, IBM was there, um, uh, agriculture company. I mean, uh, who else was there? Was interesting? IBM, uh, 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 I remember like pharmaceutical is the Swiss one. I forgot the name. It eludes me, but it's called RTP Research Tangle Park okay. in, in North Carolina and Raleigh. That's, uh, it has a, it's a big hub of all these big Fortune 500 companies from a variety of industries. So this comes to teach me, at least on the Detroit side, that if they were smart enough to create hubs, of 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 big companies with other industries not just cars mm-hmm. it will probably save the city or especially the inner city but they feel there's all like the manufacturing done you know? so over there they were able to you got to keep in mind I'm going deep into history here the south had to kind of restore itself after the civil war it was mainly all agriculture you know you got the tobacco fields and the cottons right and, and it was nothing much there maybe a little bit of furniture still, I think it's still famous for furniture uh, North Carolina you go down to North Carolina to stock up on furniture it's like a thing but uh, in the past 20, 30 years, uh, after segregation, uh, it kind of got eased off because they had also segregation issues in the South, obviously in the 60s, 70s, the, um, you know, the the human rights and and, uh, and movement that, that was uh, going on, um, it really was able to bring in all these incentives to big industries and a variety of industries. Uh, and, and it's going very, very nicely, as opposed to the coastal cities, which, And also the incentives are for the companies, but also the the population, the residents to have low taxes, affordable, a lot of land, affordable pricing for the houses, brand new cities, brand new neighborhoods. So it's very, very exciting to live there. It's very rejuvenating as opposed to, you know, an area like New York City, it's uh, heavily populated, high cost of living, high taxes, kind of deteriorating. Mm -hmm. So people make the obvious choice because it's really businesses and job opportunities where you can make almost the same amount of living, maybe even more. But your costs are t- tremendously less now. Florida is getting that boom. Actually, uh, since COVID, it's a different discussion. But as we say in Hebrew, okay, okay. Back, back on track, back, back yeah, on track, back on track. So uh, what happened was uh, at the same, you know, all over these years, my my older siblings siblings um, kind of did the same thing. My mother did. They went to school in a different country.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, they went to school in Yeshiva University. My, my older brother, it's a it's a uh, Jewish university, in New York City, and my sister went to the same one. But the girls' division or the ladies' division is called Stern College or right. Stern University. Mm-hmm. They both uh, learned there. Then they uh, fell in love. They got married and got stuck in the New Jersey area. Okay. something my mother did decades ago. But, you know, from the United she States, is in Israel. In Israel. Sure. Yeah. And she okay. got stuck in Ronana. <laughs> so they kind of settled over there. And uh, so I transitioned to New Jersey because I was able to, um, with uh, my older brother again, uh, uh, um, he created uh, another uh, venture uh, and involved, you know, uh, Uh, supplements, selling and doing sales and distribution, uh, for supplements in the tri-state area. Tri-state is typically the New York, Connecticut, and New Jersey area. Right. So that's what we did. We actually had divisions where we, um, you know, retail activity where we set up kiosks in the mall to sell these vitamins. Obviously, needless to say, it was an opportunity for me to take my, my retail mall experience and, uh, brick and mortar real, uh, 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 brick and mortar store experience to, to that dimension, uh, and create all these, uh, these sales, uh, you know, uh, point of sales. But also we had uh, a distribution with, you know, we did, um, over 300 pharmacies around the, the, the trusted area. So we had to do all this distribution to keep on distributing the, the goods and the products. And also we were selling, uh, we were selling online. Mm-hmm. We had the website and we we're selling to Amazon, selling on Amazon, on eBay. So that was kind of my early dabble into e-commerce. Mm-hmm. Right. So, and that kind of took me to where I'm today, uh, which is the industry that I'm today, which is e-commerce uh, with Getira. That was uh, the early seeds looking back. i uh, okay. you know, it was more we were more entrenched into breaking into uh brick and mortar, uh-huh. and physical retail within the malls and the and the pharmacies and the grocery stores. Uh and e commerce was like in the little seeds that the company planted, right? And it was growing on its own merit. Uh so what what happened was that uh I got you know had a good experience on how to sell products online.
0: Mm-hmm. Um and then you got the experience I, marketing because the, yeah because the our company uh, I mean the, yeah. the supplements
1: yeah yeah the supplements yeah so we're getting orders in I was uh, I was learning how to list products online how to market it how to position it uh, in addition to that actually I did eventually go to university it wasn't in Israel it was here in the United States I went to Thomas Edison State University I picked up a degree in in, um, in uh, business and accounting so what happened was also uh, on the Amazon side I was able to get experience selling on Amazon my textbooks. Cause on Amazon, I had two options to, um, uh, for my textbooks that I was buying for, for, for my classes, I had two ways to get rid of it. The first one was to get, um, a credit, like a trading credit. Uh huh. And let's say the, you know, for that credit, if, that book, I'll get maybe $20 in trading qu- credit. But if I sell it on Amazon, I might be able to sell it and keep $60 instead of like that $20, right? And I get paid cash. So I can use that cash for anything.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Once again, cause if I, um, send the book into in, I get $20 Amazon credit. So I can only shop on Amazon. But if I sell on Amazon, I cash out more money and it's cash. Right. So I got experience on selling on Amazon through that as well. Okay. So what happened what was happening side to side was that um I went to the local synagogue, right? Uh it was actually a Chabad synagogue. It was a Russian Chabad synagogue because the town that I settled in was called it's it's called Fairlawn. Yeah. And Fairlawn is um uh it has a really high concentration of of Russians. Mm-hmm. Uh, the second largest Russian population in the United States after Brooklyn. New it. York. Yeah. So kind of the, so it's a large population of Russians. actually a lot of Israelis as well uh-huh. in Fairlawn. Uh, so eventually that, so my wife and I became almost like poster children of, of, of Fairlawn because she was originally from Russia and uh-huh. I was originally from Israel. So, uh, you can connect everybody. Yeah. So no, <laughs> really, we didn't plan to live in Fairlawn, but it turned out that Fairlawn is pretty much that, that makeup of Russians and Israelis. And of course, yeah. regular folks. But it has, um, uh, interesting. Wait, that means the Russians and Israelis are not regular folks, right? You don't mean that. Yeah, <laughs> no, I'm saying regular all kinds of folks. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, but, you know, these are uh, two distinct. When I say Russians, it's, it's, it's a mixed word right now because the war, it's, 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 um, Russian speaking population because, of course, you got the Ukrainians, you got the Moldovians, right. you got right. the Azaris. So, uh, so it's the whole mix, but Russian speaking, um, you know, people. Uh, so, up to the, so up to the war in Ukraine, you know, you might be able to get by. Today, I guess it's more important for people to put that uh, differentiation of, of, of Ukrainians and Russians or Russian-speaking, you know, people from the from ex-Soviet Union. Ah, that would be uh, probably the best. FSU, packaging. right. Now, yeah. I
0: grew up FSU, meant Florida State University. Now it means former Soviet Union. But it's really funny. Just an anecdote here is that some, some Russian emigrants in the Jewish community over here, they tell me that it's so funny when they hear Jewish people calling them Russian Jews because Russians. Because to them, Russians were always the non-Jews, and yep. they were always the Jews. <laughs> okay. Fine. Very good. Okay. So you're in yeah. parallel different Asia. environments, different, you know, use of, yeah. of names. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. Uh... That's how, that's no, the I, language. I, I actually perception. relate
1: to that because in America, yeah. I'm very Israeli, but in Israel, I'm very American. Okay, <laughs> you know, so I, I, I really I can relate to that uh, uh, kind of notion. Yeah. Okay, so what happened was, uh, uh, so they they have the two chabads in Fairland. Uh I guess call it the regular chabad, or some call it even the Israeli chabad, and then you have the Russian chabad. Yeah. I went to the Russian chabad. You know, you got to respect the wife. Yeah. So um, over there, I met uh, a guy, uh, born, Um He was doing accounting for you know a furniture company, and what. Pretty passionate about the potential of e-commerce and stuff online. So, and we're talking about what, start... what year? This is like this is right. Uh, I met him. I met him. I met him there in uh, 2010 already. Okay, and we're friendly for a while. Yeah, for over a year, maybe even two. And you know, uh, each of us kind of developing their own career. I was doing the sales and distribution. He was doing his thing with accounting. Uh, we got pretty friendly, and then we, did, you know, we realized that there's a lot of opportunity to do stuff online to sell products online. So essentially we started selling stuff online as well, you know, together and we tried to kind of, uh, get a hold of anything we can sell, you know, uh, and we initially started to sell on eBay. So we, uh, and, and we, we found a good connection to sell watches with, uh, like a distributor and a broker and a dealer and, uh, on eBay and it went pretty well. And then, uh, some jewelry, stuff like that. And then 2013. To make a long story short, we started started selling, you know, the products on Amazon as well because Amazon was up and coming. Today, it's a big beast and everybody knows about Amazon. But back then, 10 years it was, ago, it was, it was up and coming. First, yeah. this is back then, eBay was the... Yeah, eBay, it, it was, was, eBay was like then. the main arena. eBay was yeah. the main e-commerce arena. Everybody kind of knew about it. Everybody knew you can sell on it. On Amazon, 10 years ago, uh, you know, it was up and coming for yeah. the third-party sellers. Uh-huh. Right? What does that mean? Let's It used let's to be it used
0: to be it started as like used books, right?
1: Amazon started yeah, Amazon yeah. as a as a website, as a platform, started uh nineteen ninety four mm-hmm. as a bookseller. Right. And it was selling its own products, right? You know, it was buying and selling its own products. So even mm-hmm. today, a lot of consumers don't realize that when you buy stuff on Amazon, it's not necessarily that you're buying it from Amazon, like it used to be in nineteen ninety four and right. on. It's actually you're buying from third party sellers, which sure. means
0: yeah. I think most you're, people you're, know that.
1: Today it's a bit more, but even that notion, because yeah. when you buy something on Amazon, you say, I bought it on Amazon. But yeah. 70% of the time, it's, uh, you bought it from a third party seller who sells on Amazon, which is a marketplace. Right. Um, anyways. So, uh, 10 years ago it was even like more entrenched in the, in the, the psychology that only Amazon sells on Amazon. Mm-hmm. Okay. And if you want, but no, it's not the case. There's third party sellers who can sell on Amazon because they opened up the platform for that. So it's up it up and coming as a platform for third party sellers as opposed to eBay, which only did that. eBay never sold anything itself. Uh-huh. It was always a third-party platform. So the notion or the psychology back then was, you know, if you want to sell products online, eBay was the place to go. If you want to sell products on Amazon, you didn't really know you can sell there because uh-huh. you only thought Amazon sells on Amazon. Okay. So we figured out that you can sell stuff on Amazon as a they third-party started, seller. They started
0: making that known, and they they. That was uh, natural. That was like without. without no, what happened was with oh. Amazon historically was that they obviously, much like the Amazon story,
1: they started with books and then they did CDs and games and, and DVDs and then shoes and they opened up all these categories for mm-hmm. themselves to sell. As yeah. as they opened up the categories for themselves to sell, uh, to, for themselves to sell on, uh, uh, sell so through. Uh, what they did, they did the same thing for third party sellers. They gradually, uh, gradually started to open up these categories for third party sellers. So maybe at first it was electronics. You can go be a third party seller. Later on, the watches It was like that. So we came okay. into the mix. We, we were selling a lot of watches. So I think up to 2012 or 13, um, that's when they opened up the watches for third party sellers. It was closed. All of a sudden, when they opened it up, said, like, "Oh, it's up and coming. It's Amazon. They allow you to sell watches now uh, as a third party." And the, uh, they open up the category. Let's try Let's try it out. By the way, Amazon sells that kind of. um the volatility where they sometimes uh, open categories and then they get it. You cannot come in anymore.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: They, they throttle it. Right? So if you want to sell in a certain specific niche, uh, they might open up. So they want to bring uh, a good amount of sellers and they say, Oh, we have too many of them. Stop. So you can sell, but then they're not taking new sellers. They still have yeah. that in some niches. Okay. Uh, so anyways, back in two we're able to uh, slide into uh, the, 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 the watch category. And that's it. Since that point on, it was like, um, like atomic bomb, you know, blew up. It was just, it was a big beast. It you know, doesn't get uh full, everything that we had, we sourced, we're able to sell very, very quickly. So the business grew very, very quickly from zero to 20 million in a- annual sales. Wow. So all of a sudden we're able to really, you know, leave mm-hmm. our professional positions and become entrepreneurs and business owners and have a whole business in our hands with the whole team. We had to build a team and logistics and finance and cash flow. Uh, and it was like lightning speed. It was a big, uh, boom for us. Uh, you know, it kind of, I always say this is the moment e-commerce comes, it came into our life. It was knocking and it swept us all in and we never kind of looked back. Uh, and then, uh, we gradually became a part of a larger group. And as a group, we we're doing about a hundred million in, in, annual
0: revenue. And that's when it became even more big and more corporate. And that was for, that was combining with, with, with already existing Amazon sellers and, and just pooling your resources. Correct. So yeah, idea, in a nutshell, idea. what
1: happened was we were growing uh, independently so much. Uh, and uh So we're straining a few suppliers. Some of these suppliers that we wow. had, uh, at least one in particular, we were buying so much. First of all, we didn't buy... At the, in the beginning, we didn't buy directly, but buy from other brokers. There's yeah. always kind of the thing when you source products, you <laughs> always want to come to the source. Because if you go to the source, the original source, you get the best pricing. The mm-hmm. more you go through brokers, the more they get after they have to yeah. make their markup so you can't be competitive. But as we sold, we we're able to buy more and more. And we sold more and more. And we got purchasing power. And the volume was so significant, the workers were not able to handle us. They were too slow for us to even communicate. Right. So that led us to the, they all, the, the, some of the surrender say, I'll just tell you where my sources go, you know, good luck. Uh-huh. Just go with them. Okay. So what happened was the source, the, the, the one of the, the main suppliers said, you know, let's partner together. You know, uh, you guys have skill. I'll, i am going to be in charge of the sourcing. So I'll help you, uh, scale skill up the sourcing. Right, because that's what kind of what they specialize in, but we specialize in the operations of e-commerce and Amazon. So we kind of bundled together into a group, where we had other uh, uh, divisions, you know, specializing in selling other stuff. But we all had shared resources, you know, logistics, uh, finance, uh, best practices, whatever it was, and we had constantly kind of a board and, and constant meeting of the board. So it became very uh, powerfully structured. That gave us also a lot of tremendous experience. But all along the lines, what happened was that uh, we constantly figured out that uh, there's constantly discrepancies with uh, the inventory that we're selling on Amazon. And that gave birth to mm-hmm. the company that I lead today. And I'm, I'm one of the co-founders, which is called Gatira, mm-hmm. right? This is the company I'm today and I'm the chief growth officer. So in a nutshell, um, what happened, uh, I'm going to get very basic here for, for anybody listening to understand, understand what we do and what, and what we do while we do it. So when you sell on Amazon as a third-party seller, you have two options, logistically speaking, right? First option is you have your own warehouse. And as the orders come in from the marketplace, you fulfill it. You fulfill the orders. You pick it from the bin, you package it in a box, you buy a UPS label, FedEx label, whatever, you ship it out. That's the first option. It's called FBM, fulfilled by merchant. You're the mm-hmm. merchant, you fulfill the order. Great. There's a second option on Amazon that you ship your inventory in bulk to Amazon. They store, the, they receive it, they store the inventory. And as the orders come in from the marketplace, they fulfill it. And it's fulfilled by Amazon.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And when it's fulfilled by Amazon, typically what happens is very, very nicely in the marketplace, it shows you Fulfillment, uh, you know, uh, uh, Prime, you get the Prime badge because mm-hmm. it's fulfilled by Amazon. So having these two options, which uh, started initially doing the fulfillment ourselves. and But uh, the moment we saw Amazon gives you that option to use their Logistics Pro called FBA, Fulfilled by Amazon, we opted into that program. And uh, and it really helped to scale because instead of us having a 50 or $100 million Fulfillment center logistically, uh, we we didn't need to. We leverage Amazon's billions of dollars worth of uh, warehouses, you know, spread out all over the country and the world, for that matter, because we also expanded internationally. So that's kind of the two options you have logistically selling on Amazon. The issue is that when you use Amazon's fulfillment services, uh, you have to audit everything that's going on. You have to track and monitor all the all everything that's going on. So if any of that inventory gets lost in Amazon's fulfillment center, right? or damaged, or destroyed, or disappeared, or gets overcharged with fees unnecessarily, uh, you know, for the right reason, you have to track and audit that. It's a lot of, you know, technology. Sorry, it's a lot of numbers crunching. And we did that from day one. From the first shipment we ever shipped to them, we always reconciled everything that was going on with our inventory in Amazon's hands. The problem was that uh, as we scaled, we had so much data coming in to process and audit all this information, we had to build technology because our spreadsheets were breaking. Mm -hmm. So realizing that, we kind of did two things. The first thing we did was we created software and technology to audit all the transactions and the data that comes in da- on a daily basis from all of our inventory from, from Amazon's fulfillment centers. And the second thing was to set up a dedicated team to handle that data because I'll give you a simple example. You ship a 1,000 units to Amazon's fulfillment centers, and Amazon, instead of receiving 1,000 units, they only receive 909 units. So 10 units are missing. You, the seller, the third-party seller, need to reconcile that and then show them the discrepancy. They might ask you for even more information or documentation. And if they really deem it lost, what they do is they give you a reimbursement. They pay you financially. So, we're sorry, the tenants are lost. Here, here's a refund or reimbursement. Boom, you're good to go. So that's our mission. This is how we help the sellers. This is a small one example. There's many other examples. So our mission is to help Amazon third-party sellers around the globe to reconcile all these transactions, all these discrepancies where units get lost or damaged or destroyed or disappeared or get overcharged with fees. And they have an, 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 an and, but they're eligible to get a reimbursement or recovery, a financial recovery, and typically they're able to get access to cash flow or the cash they never expected to have. Because uh-huh. what's interesting is that Amazon allows the sellers to go back up to eighteen months on all these discrepancies. So you go back eighteen months, and and, and you get uh, you you get all these uh, refunds that you never know that you're eligible to get. And we flush them back with, uh, you know, with uh, these refunds and cash flow that they never expected. And hopefully they take it and they reinvest in the business. They buy more inventory, they hire more staff, whatever it is that they need to do. Because we discovered over the years that the discrepancy rate on an annual basis is between one uh, all the way up to 3%. So if you're doing a million dollars on Amazon using their fulfillment centers, or, or as we call it, you're an, uh, uh, you're an FBA seller, a fulfillment Amazon seller, doing a million dollars a year on FBA. Uh, if one to 3% of recovery can be 10 to $30,000. Right. And that's money. Right. So, so sellers, A, most of the sellers are not aware, but the sellers who are aware about it, they don't know what to do about it. That's when we come in as a solution to help them.
0: And we help, so you know, yeah. Did you develop this, this business, Katita? Was it a, a side, a side business? No, no. Your, so your, the, yeah, it's yeah.
1: a good question. So we created for ourselves the solution. We created for ourselves because we're, you know, cause when we're doing a hundred million a year, that's between one to three million dollars we have to recover every sure. year. Right. So that was material enough for us to create a technology and a dedicated team to solve the issue. Uh-huh. And what happened was we um we solved the issue for ourselves and we told our friends from the industry that we have these capabilities and they told us the market was telling us help us, we'll pay you. And that was the initial you know seeds of the company back in 2015. So it started as a kind Just of small... through
0: networking to other. Yeah. We're, we know, we know yeah. other sellers. We're in the industry. We go to shows and conferences. Yeah. So we know a few. So we, we had, had this problem. We had this problem that we've created technology to solve the problem. They said, Hey, I need that. I need that technology. So you decided... need that solution. Yeah. Okay. So you, so then you founded a separate business called Getida. Yeah. So we said, okay, you kept, let's... did you keep the old one going? The, yeah. The so we had two businesses.
1: We had the retail yeah. business and uh, I guess the technology business. Um, yeah and for in the technology of business for for a few years it was just growing organically uh, word of mouth because the business model and the value proposition is very uh appealing because it's performance based only if we get somebody refunded uh-huh. right only then we get uh 25% of you know uh, a I'll fee refund. for the for the recovery so uh-huh. you you join the com- our service our solution we get you $100 within the first 30 days, then you pay us 25%, which would be $25. But then the next 30 days, we recover $0. You pay $0. Right? No subscription. You don't ne- never have to kind of babysit the bill. You know, it's a like performance based where, so we're very incentivized to, to bring maximum impact and value to our users. So organically, we're just growing over the years. Uh, and then we kind of, uh, we came to a junction where we had, you know, the retail business and this, uh, technology business and, and solution business, uh, that is, is growing. And we felt like with retail, we kind of peaked, you know, and if, and if we ever need to go back to it, we'll go back to it. But nobody kind of can take away from, from what we know how to do uh, in retail because, you know, what we accomplish is our diploma, right? It's like you can always go back to that trade. But with this technology and solutions uh, uh, track that we laid out, we felt like if we commit to it, uh, there's an opportunity to really help many, many businesses all around the world. And that seems very exciting to us. So what we did, we took a leap of faith and we cashed out our retail positions And all the profits that we made, we plowed into into this, uh, you know, technology and solutions business. And, but once we put, you know, our, our attention, focus, dedication, creativity and determination into one vessel, that's when we kind of took leadership on this, on the niche that we're in. So the the niche that we're in is called Amazon FBA auditing and reimbursements. And today we're one of the largest organizations in the world dedicated to this niche. We have a team of over 180 people in eight countries. We audit tens of billions of dollars worth of transactions daily across our technology and, and our team members. Um, so yeah, so, and, and we're also backed up by private equity. Funny yeah. enough that private equity is also, by the, uh, intervention is also based in Detroit, Michigan. And, uh, I believe it's in Bloomfield Hills. If, uh, there's Bloomfield? The Bloomfield Hills is one of those. So, yeah, yeah. Don't, yeah. don't
0: give away too many uh, details over here, yeah you know, in real one. <laughs> no worries. Yeah. So, so
1: yeah, so. So the, the I guess the, the evolution was we created a solution for, for ourselves. It worked. It spawned and got its own life. And once we were able to really focus on one place, it created the impact that we uh, ha, ha, had a faith in ourselves that we'll be able to, to, to reach. Um, and uh, in another token, what happened was when we were in retail, uh, the retail always kind of came first. Instead of the clients that we had, uh, right? So, but once we cast out of our retail position, the clients really always came first, and that meant all the difference in the world for us. Uh-huh. That was a kind of a but, uh, and it worked. It worked. It worked out. Wow! So, to God for that. So, yeah. I,
0: I want to get. I want to get more of the uh, the Jewish content here. We have, we have only a little bit of time, so the, the, this question I love to ask every podcast. Growing up with your with your Jewish education, religious education, and being somebody you know keeping keeping the mitzvot. So, how does that? affect your business career um
1: so uh, it, to me it's um personally it helps a lot it gives me a lot of conviction so having faith and and knowing where you came from where you're going first of all you, you, we know that it helps a lot of business because I know that first of all i'm, I'm a person I'm a regular person I'm nothing special right and and you know I'm just uh, you know I, there's a cosmos there's a universe there's a creator you know you put it your up but you're humble I think humility is really key in life. But of course, I think it uh, does a, a lot of help in business because we always kind of look at things at a high level. Uh, lead, uh, sorry, greed does not lead us. Faith does. And in faith, there's universal rules where you don't cheat, you don't lie, you don't mess around, you don't go all these uh, crooked ways. You take the long and hard and uh, way and, and that's, you know, because when you practice Judaism and you're Orthodox, it's a burden. We actually call it the burden. You want to kind of accept the burden on, on yourself. We say in Hebrew, Alto al mitzvot. Like the burden of Torah and mitzvahs and doing mitzvahs, so having all these elements from, I guess, from birth, from growing up, uh, it's all layered into you. I think it to me, it tremendously helped me in business. The discipline that it takes, kind of, I call it the daily grind, because you know when you practice Judaism, you gotta, you know, pray th- three times a day, and when you eat something, you gotta bless before and you gotta bless after. Even when you put your shoes on, there's a way to do it. There's a structure, and you work with that structure. But when it's structured well and it all kind of works in sync, and you have all these challenges and up and downs in life. It gives you a lot of faith and a lot of structure, so to succeed in life. To me, at least personally, I'm only talking for myself. Everybody has their own different experiences, but for me, it gives me a lot of strength in business and life. To know that, you know, if even if anything goes wrong, I come from a, a, an authentic place. I'm trying to do good in the mm-hmm. world and for, for people, for for my organization, for my clients, for my community. That's it. I'm not here to make a fast dollar or, or spend somebody. Or, it, it, there's no value in that. There's no blessing in that. It's also it's, to the same degree. They're saying there's no blessing if you work on the Sabbath. Shabbat. We believe there's no blessing in that money. So obviously, obviously, I don't work on the Sabbath. When you uh, say blessing. So- just,
0: just to elaborate, it might not be that you. Do you believe that when you do things right, when you do things, when you do things honestly, then then there'll be a certain there'll be a blessing. Meaning there'll be growth. You'll see growth that's beyond the. Yeah, no, it's very true. challenging because you always see others, maybe
1: competitors, stuff like that, or other players in the industry that take shortcuts with all these tricky, uh-huh. you know, unethical, maybe uh, borderline stuff that they do, and it's tempting because it's a quick buck. But you say, no, no, it's not my, it's not my way, it's not my ethos. I'm just not. So I take the 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 hard, long way and just do things right. And over time, just prevails. Time after time, we're able to penetrate and prevail because, oh, you know, at the end of the day, if you if your organization is based on good people with good ethics. And good values, and they're really trying to do, uh, you know, good to other people. It just resonates all over. And the ones that, you know, are trying to make all these shortcuts uh, in the organization, outside the organization, with sometimes you, you, not, it's not well rounded, and they fall off. They they fall off, and they just look for the next short, shortcut somewhere else because they're not here to really walk the the the, the long and hard way, uh, and really pave uh, the, the the ways into to a good destination. Uh, if you cause if you take a shortcut, you know sometimes you get lost and boom, you just lose your your way. But if we we kind of know where we want to go, we realize it's going to be a long way. It's going to be a uh, challenging way. There's going to be distractions along the way, right? Something same like with the Jewish life, we know at the end of the life, we hopefully we want to go to the next world. It's like a corridor to the next world. You have to be good deeds. You're not going to cheat. You're not going to lie. You're not going to murder. You're not going to do all these things. Very very similar. So that that constructs as humans, as individuals with faith. Inside the business, also these are values that at least guide me, and I'm on the leadership position. And uh, not that we come in within the organization and say, "Hey, this is a religious organization." Not at all. This is right. a business organization, profit intended. But the way we do it, it's layered based on fundamentals that are universal, you know, to to the modern world as well. We're just not gonna cheat, not gonna lie, stay ethical. You know, gonna make mistakes, do the right so, thing, but learn que-
0: and grow from it. Yeah. No, this question occurred to me as you were talking. Not, not to not to badmouth anybody, but do you think that there's such an industry of auditing because there, there is dishonesty that there, people, are, people are not representing the product, you know, like, oh, we lost it, you know, oh, it was the wrong, so you know? There's
1: always a suspicion of that. But at the end of the day, I can tell you uh, faithfully that it's not just a numbers game, just mathematics. Mm-hmm. You know, unfortunately, I'll give you another example from another industry. When you, sh- you know, ship our rockets to the moon or to space, it's all math. But you see from some of these discrepancies, these rockets blow up in Mm midair, right? Because the calculation that was so, right? So that happened. So I'm borrowing from there. So it's obviously nobody wanted this rocket to explode and have an issue, right? It just, you know, the math, uh, all the math is done and calculated by humans, even though these humans use machines and even the machines make mistakes. Mm So the world that we live in, the data set or the data set that we live in, it just has these mathematical uh, anomalies and we're just here to find them, discover them. Uh, calibrate them, reconcile them, move on. That's it. So Perfect. we, yeah, we don't, we don't try to be emotional about it. Just be very professional <laughs> and, and scientific about
0: it. Yeah, there's no uh, no people crying in the office over there. There's no no, no special room for uh, emotional venting.
1: No, always try to you know try to stay uh, a good outer. I think just try to okay. uh, like a detective, get to the bottom of it. What are the dry facts? Where's the? And you know, leave your emotions aside. I'm sure that's how detective work is done. Probably most po- police yeah. or, or or stuff like that. You gotta kind of see where it's at, and then somebody else will make the decision, like the courts. But you as a detective, you just gotta assemble all the facts as much as you can, trying to see where direction is going, and present it forward. So that's what we do. We collect all the data, present it forward. In that case, typically to Amazon. We work on it together. If the decision that it's
0: eligible for a recovery, fine. If not, and there's a different explanation to what happened, that's fine. Beautiful. So where do you want to go from? Where do you want to go from here? What's your ultimate? uh, Where do you want to take this in uh, 10 years, 20 years before you retire? My company or myself? Well, let's let's, let's say both. (laughs) So myself, just, um,
1: you know, thank God I'm married. I got four children. Um, I'm part of a community. Uh, I, 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 do, I do feel that at some point I would like to go back home, which means Israel.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So, uh, but, um, I'm, uh, you know, that's kind of the, uh, you know, I'll be happy to, to be able to go back there and, you know, kind of live again with the, the people I grew up with, my parents, right? I got children, that's grandparents and the grandchildren. So that would be nice. So hopefully within, I don't know, five to 10 years, I'll be happy if th- 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 I'll get that opportunity. Mm-hmm. Right now it's, uh, it's not, uh, uh, so readily available because uh, and we're headquartered here in Teaneck, New Jersey. We, uh, the, the, I guess the mission or the organization is bigger than myself. I'm not right. only responsible for my income, I'm responsible for the income of 180 right. plus uh, families around, in eight countries around the world. Right. So if I'm here in the headquarters in the nerve center of it all, I, I believe it delivers the maximum impact for the organization as opposed to me working remotely in Israel all, all isolated where the nerve center of my organization is is physically located in New Jersey. So that's kind of a, uh, I guess, um, uh, not a conflict, but a reality that I'm facing and I'm fine with it. I take it, you know, uh, with great joy because I am part of a really wonderful community. You know, there's a, we have really good rabbis that lead the community, really good congregations, and it's, it's a real blessing. I always kind of joke about it and say that living in the New York, New Jersey area, it's like almost like living in Israel. It's, it's as far as away. You can live in Israel outside of Israel. Uh-huh. We have synagogues, we have you know yeshivas, we have uh, kosher uh, supermarkets, kosher restaurants, an abundance, a big selection, uh, as, as as much as it could be, as if we were living in Israel. But of course, Israel, nothing beats that, as far as I'm concerned, with everything. So that would be nice to be able to go back to the source. Uh, we mentioned earlier to the source how uh, we always kind of want to get to the source if it's inventory or for homeland or the soul wants to go back to the higher higher grounds of heaven after life, as, as we believe in Judaism. Uh, that would be that on the organizational level also um, because it's there's so many um, uh, people involved and family you know so it's fascinating for me to see the careers developing of people within my organization Mm -hmm. they want to get married so they need a good income for that so they work for us uh, that that helps them getting married or have babies uh, or buy houses all these so I'm I'm experiencing it together with my team members uh, in my organization that is that is exciting to me, so I want to create uh, or continue creating uh, or developing an organization that will, you know, be in business for decades and decades to come. Because if it's a, we it could be a strong organization with a strong environment, uh, and and it will serve uh, the needs of obviously myself, but also my team members and our clients for many years. That's something I will really definitely wish for for all of us, because you know, stability is is very helpful uh, to lead life. Uh, so uh, we got to work very hard for it and stay persistent. So that's that's what I wish for myself on the personal and also on the
0: professional. Very good, Yoni. Thank you so much for giving us so much of your time, for sharing your story all the way from the beginning, and uh, giving us an insight into this uh, this industry and what you're doing. It's, it sounds very valuable for the world, and I'm sure a lot of people will benefit from hearing this. Yeah, hope so. Thanks so much for having me. You've just listened okay. to another great episode of Our Tribe the Podcast, brought to you by the Podcast Fellowship and hosted by Rabbi Tovia Kopstein. Tune in each week, every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time to hear more great episodes of Our Tribe the Podcast. If you have any suggestions or questions, email us at ourtribe at podcastfellowship.org. And don't forget to like, share, and subscribe to help the tribe thrive.